Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week we are rounding third in Spooktober 2021. A sport. And I know. I was like, which sport? I don't know. Um, and maybe um, maybe we need to bring the mood up a little bit, which I know is, is rich coming from me. But um, like, I know that my shtick is sharing stories where the scariest thing of all is ourselves. So let's kind of shake that up a little bit and talk about some straightforward, literal monsters. What do you think, Anna? I think that's great. Okay, great. Awesome. Let's do it. But before we get into it, though, I want to define monster for today's purposes and and just like think about the term for a second. When one Googles monster, the definition that pops up is, quote, an imaginary creature that is typically large, ugly and frightening. (laughs) Merriam-Webster defines. I I, I was trying to avoid doing that, but it felt it felt, you know. Like something that needed to be done this time. Um, So the two most salient parts of this definition to how I approached um, sort of the sources that I pulled together for this episode are imagination and frightfulness. So we're looking to folk tales and mythology for examples today, but often discussions of this topic, including some of the sources in today's show notes, include among their roundups, um, deities of living and extinct religions. Um, so sure, plenty of mythology involves the actions and exploits of minor deities and sort of hero types from a past that's both history and myth. Um, but I do not want to, I do, I do not want to, to do this and I don't want our listeners to sort of merrily go down the path towards doing this. I don't want to paint the object of someone's worship with the same brush as a monster under the bed. So no, that's they're, not, that's they're not, not what we're about. So yeah, things that have sort of man, animal quality, like that's not like just because it may look weird to my eyes, given my position in sort of the cosmos. Doesn't make it monstrous. It, yeah, it doesn't make it monstrous. For this context. And it doesn't make it objectively scary. Anything. Yeah. 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 Anything. So so that's sort of that's kind of my my preface, my precy to all of this. Oh gosh. Okay. Well and I did my best in the parts that you assigned me to to excise any any mention of deities, etc. Yeah. Um, I did my best to, to go along with that. But what we're thinking about here is maybe something that your average cinematic or storybook monster thinks to themselves when they look in the mirror. Why am I here? What is my purpose? In other words, what Gosh. do monsters do for us? What are the qualities that make a monster monstrous? And why is there often a major element of empathy built into monster stories? Yeah. What has your monster done for you lately? This is now a self-help podcast. Well, along those lines, here's a bit from a 2016 article in The Conversation by Leo Brody. Quote, there are four main types of monsters, according to Leo Brody. (laughs) The monster from nature represents a power that humans only think they have harnessed, but haven't. The Loch Ness monster, Bigfoot, 
King Kong, and Godzilla are all examples of this type. An awesome abnormality that we can't predict and scramble to understand, it strikes without warning, like the shark in Jaws. Ugh, I watched that recently. Does it hold up? Oh, yeah. Oh, I have no interest in ever seeing Jaws. Oh, it's so good. I don't... I appreciate it as a... Touch, as like a, a touchstone like of cinema. Yeah. yeah, truly. That's great. That's great for you. Love that for you. Great. Hate it for me. <laughs> While the obvious inspiration are real ferocious animals. Okay. The g- giant. You're the one that accepted it. <laughs> I know. And I'm mad at my previous self. Not all animals are ferocious. Just don't get up in their space. Anyway, they could also be thought of as embodied versions of natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, and tsunamis. Type two, the created monster, like Dr. Frankenstein's monster, or those um, Boston Dynamics robots. They now have guns. That's what we want. Put guns on them. Uh, The monster we have built and believe we can control until it turns against us. Like a like a self-driving Tesla. Dr. Frankenstein's monster's descendants are the robots, androids and cyborgs of today with their potential to become all too human and threatening. Type three, the monster from within is the monster generated by our own repressed dark psychology, the other side of our otherwise bland and blameless human nature. Think the Mr. Hyde to our Dr. Jekyll. When nondescript and seemingly harmless young people turn into killers or commit other atrocities, the monster from within has shown his face. And type four, the monster from the past. The monster from the past. Like Dracula, comes out of a pagan world and offers an alternative to ordinary Christianity with his promise of a blood feast that will confer immortality. Like a Nietzschean Superman, he represents the fear that the ordinary consolations of religion are bankrupt and that the only answer to the chaos of modern life is the securing of power. End quote. So, I mean, we said we weren't going to take a hard look at ourselves in the mirror, but we're doing it early in this episode. The monster is is us. It's, it comes from all parts of our experience. Ultimately, the characters that re- represent the things we fear most come from forms of introspection. There are lots of other aspects of monsters and monstrosity to ponder too. For one thing, why are so many monsters made from different animals smashed together? Amber, I know you love a hybrid creature. I don't. Especially one that's at you? least part human. <laughs> I, I hate that. I, I hate know. that so much. I just don't. I know. If you're listening, we to this, did don't don't do don't that. ever show Amber a fawn. I hate that. Uh, we we did a whole bonus episode, uh, Dirt After Dark, all about that. If you want to hear Amber hate, I don't it for remember five minutes. I like blacked it out. <laughs> you loved it. Um, this is from a 2017 piece on Nautilus titled "Why Are So Many Monsters Hybrids?" Ugh, I actually thought this was really interesting. Nautilus is so good. Mm. Quote, this is a lengthy quote, but bear with me. Every culture, it seems, has monstrous mashups in their folklore and religion. Composite creatures appear in our earliest literature and turn up in Upper Paleolithic cave paintings. The Sphinx in Giza, half human and half lion, is at least 4,500 years old. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, 2100 BCE, heroes Gilgamesh and Enkidu battle a hybrid monster named Humbaba, described as having a lion's head and hands, but a scaly body. The many Greek hybrid creatures, centaurs, satyrs, mermaids, pegasus, hydra, griffins, chimeras, are constantly resurrected in Hollywood. Constantly? I I haven't seen a pegasus recently. I'm willing to be proven wrong, but... Literature over the last two millennia has added countless composite creatures and shapeshifters. More recently, we have regular hybridizing of humans and computers. 
So why all the taxonomic mashing and mixing? Humans have an innate or an early developmental folk taxonomy of the world, according to psychologist Dan Sperber and anthropologist Pascal Boyer, or Pascal Boyer, probably that. We have a way of organizing the world into predictable categories for easy understanding, cognition, and manipulation. Even as small children, we seem capable of grouping people, birds, bugs, trees, and fish together into kinds, similar within their category, but dissimilar across categories. Not only do kids tend to see whales as fish, but early natural history made this error too. Our folk taxonomy concerning whales reveals the unsophisticated quality of our natural classifications. If it swims in the water and looks like a fish, it's a fish. To give our brains credit, however, our pre-scientific ancestors didn't need a more nuanced understanding of whales, and we had as much knowledge about them as was probably necessary for survival. Most humans seem to share very broad mental categories of taxonomy like animal, inanimate object, but also further distinctions like slithering animals, flying animals, and four-legged animals. Whether these are innate or learned, the adult mind uses these mental categories in processing daily experience. The brain employs the categories to parse the blooming, buzzing confusion of sensory information. We call this the predictive processing theory of cognition, emphasizing the brain's pattern recognition system. Our brains create predictive models of the world that help us extract useful signals from ambient informational noise. <laughs> That's my world today, has been just ambient informational noise. Whew. Category violations strongly arouse the human mind. When our expectations about the world, snakes don't fly, are disrupted by, okay, well, actually by flying snakes, but those are gliders. And anyway, I digress. Let's say winged snakes in the form of dragons. Oh, remember the dragon episode that made me so mad? Go listen to that, listeners. Here there be dragons. The images grab our attention and become cognitively sticky. They stick in our memories, recall very easily, and spread throughout the social group. Hybrid monsters, in other words, make excellent memes. End quote. And remember, listener, before meme meant dumb pop culture joke you send your friends as a form of communication, it meant something that was repeatedly reproduced by oral or visual tradition. A meme. So these hybrids that are cognitively sticky are a way of encoding emotion, fear, power, lust, all the strong feelings that we can't see or hear or touch get embodied in the monsters we create. Yeah. So speaking of feelings, um, let's talk about feeling sorry for monsters. Uh, so one of the classic subjects of the horror genre, uh, Frankenstein's monster, whose name is actually Adam, and really the real monster is people that find it funny to say like Frankenstein was the way never mind um so it's often portrayed as a sympathetic <laughs> the, the real yeah the real monsters Just are hackneyed writers Just let it go <laughs> he's often portrayed as a sympathetic character why uh quoting from Gizmodo here uh, lots of people have talked about how empathizing with heroes or victims in a horror movie might make the movie scarier, notes Heath Matheson, an experimental psychology PhD candidate at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. But fewer people have written about the question of why we'd want to sympathize with the monster or the killer. So Matheson believes there's a simple explanation for why we might want to understand monsters in order to fear them. Once we understand the monster's motivations, we believe in their agency. So Matheson says, 
uh, subquote. Uh, that <laughs> is, we come to understand that they are agents with powerful motivations and will work towards them, often seeking revenge on careless teenagers. Through <laughs> Though horror movies are often effective when the monster is not an agent, it's a natural disaster or something else mindless, a truly effective monster is one that we feel is goal-directed and able to achieve these goals. Um, end quote from him. Um, and Gizmodo goes on to say, there's also the fact that empathizing with the monster opens up the most primal fear of all, the fear that we, ourselves, could turn into monsters, says Raymond A. Marr, an assistant professor of psychology at York University. Marr says, quote, People want to understand the things that scare them to make them less scary. I think we're driven by an innate and spontaneous tendency to empathize with everything around us in order to try to understand it and predict it all. The more we can relate and humanize a creature, hopefully the less scary it becomes, end quote. So there's this continuum of understanding. So if we understand the monster acts with agency, we fear it. But if we continue to try to understand the monster as an individual, we may be able to empathize. I think that's the same arc that happens when when we humans encounter any kind of other. So monsters represent the unknown, the intangible, the emotional. But when those things coalesce into a character that we can actually that that can actually interact with the world of storytelling, uh, that's when they become relatable. So let's take a quick break and when we come back we'll do a monster roundup i got my monster lasso it's chris webster again if you haven't checked out our new parent website culturomedia.com then please do culturo is spelled k-u-l-t-u-r-o and it's where we promote all of our live events we've got one coming up in november Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back and we're rounding up some, is that a yeehaw? That's a yeehaw. Yep. Okay. We're back and we're rounding up some classic monsters, starting with trolls who were already sort of undesirable characters in folklore, but whom the internet has given a truly awful name. So let's talk troll origins and specifically a theory that I think Amber put in on purpose as a little Halloween trick or treat for me. Are trolls based on Neanderthals? I am quoting NorwegianAmerican.com. Quote, in addition to modern growing scientific study of this interaction between modern humans and Neanderthals, there is also the much earlier but mostly undocumentable folkloric encounters of humans and what was considered non-human, even if legends suggest mating could produce offspring that would also be fertile. 
Some of the folklore beings that come up regularly in Northern European culture include trolls and the like, marginalized creatures with mostly negative personae in the long traditions. The big what-if question probed here that is greatly speculative but also has intriguing potential for actual human prehistory mostly unwritten, is whether or not trolls, for example, are vestigial human memories of Neanderthals. Fictive or not, William Golding hypothesized human-Neanderthal interaction in his 1955 novel, The Inheritors. He was the Lord of the Rings guy? uh, Lord of the Flies. That's what I'm talking about. Thanks. Lord of the Flies. (laughs) I know the difference. I know you do. (laughs) I know you do. It's really tired. I know. More to the topic here, Finnish paleontologist Bjorn Kurten was one of the first to hint at this idea of Neanderthals as trolls in fictionalized narratives in the 1970s and 80s. Another prescient Finn, Andreas Heinekrun, formerly of the Swedish Natural History Museum and trained in entomology, so definitely up on his Neanderthals, has also sagely popularized the possible troll Neanderthal connection at least as early as 2012. But does he have to or, need to know about Neanderthals to like think about the long, like the deep history and sort of uh, like myth? I just think sort it's of- an interesting hobby for a, for a bug guy. But sure, why not think about trolls in the long hours between beetles? There are also the long-standing Scandinavian folk traditions that trolls long antedated humans in the North as the old ones, and that they are usually described as unattractive relative to humans. Rude. Trolls, however, are often difficult to define as mythical creatures with possible meanings shifting throughout Scandinavian literature, and they sometimes possess magical powers that cannot be explained by the late sagas, since Icelandic literature preserves in writing what may not have been recorded in prior Old Norse oral tales. Trolls are sometimes enlarged into huge creatures when connected to the old Jotun, or ancient ice giants, in Norway, whose rocky abodes were along the spine of the glacially hewn mountains of the same name, Jotunheimen, end quote. And then um, from later in this article, a truly tenuous linguistic clue, quote, The meaning of the Greek word troglodyte, now glossed as cavemen, seems a fairly old one, compounded together from at least Aristotle in the 4th century BCE in his De Partibus Animalium, which he wrote around 350 BCE. But at first, referencing animals that dwell in holes and then cavemen in other authors, according to the Greek lexicon. The original meme word or idea of troll as cave dweller, possibly from the same root as troglodyte in Proto-Indo-European, could even be a linguistic artifact of this possible memory, although Old Norse only has the written word troll from the medieval period onward, as mentioned above. End quote. Tenuous indeed. So next up, we head to Japan, whose folklore abounds with stories of yokai, which are supernatural entities or specters that aren't by default evil or necessarily even all that spooky. Um, but there's one that I'd like to focus on today, which is in its own way a callback to our last episode and my reports of man-sized catfish in the Ohio River. I'm now, not even man-sized. <laughs> now take that man-sized catfish and make it bigger. Like no. super big. <laughs> no. Like giant man-sized catfish. Now you've got a Namazu. So Onamazu are just like regular catfish, only massive. Um, <laughs> in fact, massive enough to cause destruction when they act up. So according to a very cool website and, and kind of sort of 
encyclopedia of yokai, yokai yokai.com. They say, quote, long ago, common belief was that earthquakes were caused by large dragons which lived deep in the earth. During the Edo period, the idea of catfish causing earthquakes gradually began to displace dragons in popular lore as the origin of seismic activity. By the 1855 Great Ansai Earthquake, the Onomatsu had become the popular culprit to blame for earthquakes. This was due mostly to the hundreds of illustrations of thrashing catfish, which accompanied (laughs) newspapers reporting news of that disaster. They were so popular that they spawned an entire genre of woodblock print um, called Nemadzu-i, catfish pictures. So the reason catfish came to represent earthquakes, have you seen catfish thrash? So, so catfish thrash, they just kind of freak out. It, oh, so okay. have you ever gone catfishing? No. Okay. Well, when you get them out, they get thrashy. They freak it's out. it's upsetting. Okay. Um, so the reason catfish came to represent earthquakes was due to a large number of witnesses observing catfish behaving oddly. So thrashing about violently for seemingly no reason, uh, just before an earthquake. So rumor quickly spread that the catfish had some kind of ability to foresee the coming disaster. Since then, the catfish has regularly appeared as a symbol for earthquakes, either as the cause or a warning. End quote. So the whole reason why I wanted to talk about Onomatsu today is Namatsu-e. So I've included a roundup of prints in the show notes. And please, 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 please do yourself a favor and look at them. So something I came to. So don't look at them yet, Anna, because I'm going to say oh. something important. Okay. Um, something I came to appreciate during my time volunteering at the Asian Art Museum as somebody who uh, knows about the art of Western Asia. Uh, but I was working a lot with art of. East Asia and other parts <laughs> of Asia um, is that in order to fully admire visual culture, in in my case, it was especially Japanese woodblock prints and, and paintings. Um, it's important to have an understanding of the historical and social context um, because they're very like dense with meaning. Um, but even without it, you can come away with a sense of this is working through complex grief and fear and, and kind of appreciate it on kind of a like, I get it. Like, I don't understand it but i recognize it or i like oh that's a joke i like that um and so looking <laughs> at the namazu e there are things that feel evident like fear of buildings falling down around you anger over the cosmic injustice of it all and making fun of the thing that you want to blame it all on and there's something else that appears in several that i cannot let go <laughs> one print which is to be hung on your ceiling for apotropaic purposes anna Apotropaic, warding off evil. Yeah. So it depicts the god Kashima looking very angry as a bunch of catfish wearing kimono prostrate themselves before him in apology for causing earthquakes oh. while he was away. Sorry. Yeah they're, yeah, they're just all being like, oh, sorry. They're so little. They're just like these little guys being like, oh, I'm just a little guy. I'm sorry. <laughs> and it's just, um, and it's amazing. Um, so don't get me wrong. There are like plenty of them where it's just like a straight up catfish, like a huge catfish. Yeah, and then sure. there are others where they're just wearing clothes. Um, and um, there's another where a catfish and his catfish family are being closed in upon by a mob of angry people. Oh, no. Like seeking revenge for, for doing this. For earthquake. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And they're wearing clothes. And like, the I want fish. you to see the catfish in kimono. Okay. Like who knew that fish in clothes was my brand of humor. This fish thinks he's people. It's very funny. Oh, um, look at that guy. <laughs> yeah, just Look at that guy. 
and his it's robe. Just, yeah, it's just like. And so okay, there's no, that's a man dressed as a catfish. No, he, no, he's a catfish, but he's also a man. I know he's got hands and stuff, but he's and some of them have little like fin. It's great. It's so great. Uh, it's really oh. great. And there are others. Oh, these little guys. The, the one. Do you see the one where they're apologizing? We're all. I do. They're, they're all just, like, "Oh no, I'm so sorry." Oh gosh, and the got, god is like, "They've got." The gods like you guys. Yeah. <laughs> They've all got that smile on their face that your dog does when dog knows dog did bad. Yeah. And they've all got like, the little, they've got the catfish whiskers. So they've got yeah. the two little pin, the little things that stick out from catfishes. Like these people, like they knew what catfish looked like. I love this um, samurai it's catfish. So, it's so, oh, the one, the, the catfish in armor. Yeah. Oh, they're brilliant. Great. Amazing. I love, love this. Them. I love them. Um, okay. So. Our clumsy fishy friend isn't all bad, though. He's also a comrade. So the upheaval and destruction of property that comes along with an earthquake was seen as an opportunity for wealth to be redistributed across the impoverished and reduce inequity and resources, even if only briefly. So, so this all fit into the idea of Yo Naoshi, a regular renewal of the world and extends hope for a turning of the table so that, for like, so that the poor might inherit the wealth of the rich. So for this reason, onomatsu are sometimes associated with like brief good luck or a windfall. Huh. Um, and so by the good by, luck catfish. So, yeah. So by the by, I checked up on the connection between thrashy catfish and earthquake warning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to be a myth that persists to this day um, and has like research funding dumped into it. Um, oh, <laughs> so, so Japan is an extremely seismically active area. And yeah. with the ma- with massive earthquakes like the 1855 on site Edo uh, earthquake that that sort of spawned that genre and the 1995 <laughs> Kobe earthquakes in recent historical memory. Um, it's understandable that researchers and the entities that fund research would be interested in finding something, anything that might be helpful in predicting earthquakes. Um, unfortunately, it's not something that could be predicted e- really like well at all, even by twitchy catfish, huh. but on the it's subject, not their whiskers, huh? No, but they, they use, they, so they, um, the the theory was that they are they're good at like electromagnetic um, oh, signaling. Okay, so a, and a so they would, they that. thought that yeah they thought that it could be something like that. So they, like sure. it's not just like it's not. Oh, crap. I didn't think it was out of nowhere. I just yeah, thought maybe they just, would be just, sensing it, seismic vibrations before anyone else could. Yeah, they had yeah, but it little did. No. no, okay, not no. really. That's they're not they're not great. Let's cut this. Did they try putting them in clothes first? Oh my god, it's it's great. It's great. It's great. It's so great. great. There's so many of them where it's like there's one where it's like a group of men inspecting an image of a catfish, and the guy's like holding up like a picture of like a literal catfish, and it's just like this is the one, and everyone's like "Mm, catfish, and like (laughs) it's it's great. It's a beautiful favor. Beautiful art. There's a lot going on, and some of them have fish wearing clothes. Mm. Who knew? So, on the subject of earthquakes, I want to touch briefly on folklore from another part of the Ring of Fire, indigenous communities in the Pacific Northwest. There are several groups which have stories of Thunderbird and Whale, uh, in which Thunderbird attacks Whale by driving its talons into Whale's back, and Whale dives down into the ocean, pulling Thunderbird down and drowning him because kind of stuck. Very in metal. 
These stories tie together the phenomena of earthquakes and tsunamis, which are of all like always of grave concern for those living close to the coast. So yeah, it's course. like understood that there is a causal relationship between earthquakes and tsunamis. Um, so there's another earthquake related monster in folklore, which I find very compelling in this in this general area. There's several groups that have similar stories of the uh, Yahos. So in 1985, a Seattle Weekly article reper- referred to something called a spirit boulder near the Fauntleroy ferry dock in what's today Seattle, which was associated with the Ahiahos. So I'm going to include a quote from an article that I'll mention in a second. I'll give you more context okay. for it. So sure. they say native stories often describe Ahiahos in a way that could refer to earthquake effects, especially landslides. Ahiahos is a shapeshifter often appearing as an enormous serpent, sometimes double-headed with blazing eyes and horns, or as a composite monster having the four quarters and head of a deer and the tail of a snake. <laughs> Ahiahos is a doctor spirit power, which means that it's reserved for sh- for shaman. So it's one of the most powerful personal spirit powers, malevolent and dangerous to encounter. Ayahos is associated with shaking and rushes of turbid water and comes simultaneously from land and sea. So um, the saying at the spot where Ayahos came to a person, the very earth was torn, landslides occurred and the trees became twisted and warped. Such spots were recognizable for years afterward. So cool story, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that Seattle weekly story was published in 1985 being like, cool cool story from like indigenous myth cool and then in 1992 (laughs) geological evidence of an earthquake from around um, 900 ce estimated a magnitude of 7.4 so like a big one big um was published (laughs) and the seattle fault which um was the the spirit boulder near that on it all righty. So the Seattle Fault is now recognized as a substantial hazard to the Seattle urban area. So prior to um, 92, they didn't know that this was that there was a fault line here, much less fault. that it was like it wasn't wow. it wasn't it wasn't active. It was a it's mm-hmm. sort of like how like New Madrid, like the New Madrid Fault, like doesn't do a whole lot. But when it does, we're <laughs> in for it like that, that kind of oh, thing. I don't like, like to think about that. But yes, I do know what um, you're talking about. Yeah. So um, the the earthquake that happened around 900 CE caused seven meters of vertical uplift on the southern side, yeah. sent massive block landslides tumbling into like what's today called Lake Washington and created a tsunami in what's today called Puget Sound that left sand deposits on southern Whidbey Island. Stories about Ahiahos mention a number of specific places in the central Puget Sound, along the Hood Canal, and on the Strait of Juan de Fuca, as far west as the the Elwha River. A total of 13 Ahiahos sites are mentioned in various stories, and these locales coincide with shallow faults around the Puget Sound, including the Little River Fault along the Strait of Juan de Fuca, the Tacoma Fault, and the Price Lake Scarps. Five of the Ayaho story sites are located very close to the trace of the Seattle Fault. Four of the Seattle locales can be associated with landslides or reports of land level changes that might have been caused by the uh, 900 CE Seattle earthquake. Additional native stories related to the shaking, landsliding, or land level change are associated with three of these sites. So. 
twist. This the Ayaho story isn't about a, a snaky looking monster. It's oral history. So indigenous populations before anyone anywhere like 900 <laughs> CE had developed seismology as a scientific endeavor, identified the fault lines and passed on this knowledge. So once again, we have an example of, of science in the global north catching up with indigenous knowledge. And also if you think about how a fault line emerges like if you have like kind of snaky it's snaky yeah so the above comes from an article in the show notes that happens to pull together both sides of the ocean and pull in some seismology um, called huh. folklore and earthquakes native american oral traditions from cascadia compared with written traditions from japan i really recommend you check it out if this has piqued your interest because it's so really cool. cool to see the the ways in which deep history and oral history and and also like recent written history in the case of like the Edo earthquake in in 1855 um, mm -hmm. how they how they do have a role in understanding natural phenomena and 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 sort of recovering from and protecting against in the future because if you know like you don't want to be around like when an Ayahu start partying. Oh, well, like and so you have a sense of where these things are because what if it comes back or something? Right. Ah, just so cool. And now another monster origin that I had no idea was a thing and that I am now baffled by. Well, and you also know it isn't a thing. <laughs> no, it's super not a thing. I'm still baffled. <laughs> From paleontologist Mark Witten's blog, why Protoceratops almost certainly wasn't the inspiration for the Griffin legend. Um, and this is from uh, Mark, Mark Witten's own website. Yeah, yeah. A answering a question that we didn't even know we were supposed to have asked. I didn't know it was a question, truly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but then I asked it and was met with this. One thing that everyone knows about the mid-sized, late Cretaceous, Asian-horned dinosaur Protoceratops is that it's thought to be a fossil with historic mythological significance. Specifically, it's said to be the origin for the griffin, the lion-bodied, bird-headed chimera that has appeared in art and folklore for thousands of years. You could be forgiven for thinking that this idea is quite old and established because it's mentioned frequently in books, TV shows, and online articles, but it's actually a relatively modern invention. What I'll be calling the Protoceratops Griffin hypothesis was first proposed by Adrian Mayer and Michael Heaney in the 1993 folklore paper Griffins and Arimaspians, and then developed by Mayer across two editions of the book The First Fossil Hunters, Paleontology in Greek and Roman Times. These authors were not the first to suggest that the griffin had a basis in ancient interpretations of fossil animals, but they presented the first argument linking griffins to horned dinosaurs, as well as a suite of historic evidence supporting their interpretation. The idea has been praised by several paleontologists and is celebrated as one of the superior accounts of fossils influencing ancient mythology. The basic premise of the Protoceratops griffin hypothesis is straightforward. Tales of ancient Greek explorers of the 7th century BCE, but first written about in the 5th century BCE, include discussions of vicious, beaked, gold-guarding quadrupedal animals living in deserts to the northeast of Greece. These stories are said to have originated with the Scythians, nomadic peoples who mined gold from Central Asia from localities close to the bone beds of Protoceratops in Mongolia and China. 
It is reasoned that Scythian nomads saw the weathering skeletons of protoceratops as they prospected for gold and told others of their existence. The Greeks interpreted these as real-life versions of the griffins they knew from history and the mythology as we know it was born. End quote. And then Witten treats readers of his blog to a griffin timeline with some really detailed thoughts about comparative anatomy and geography of fossil locations compared with various legends. And then he finishes up with, quote, With all this said, it seems invoking protoceratops to the griffin myth is nothing but a complication for griffin origins. Data has to be selected to fit this model and then worked around, rather than with existing ideas on griffin origins that better account for its history, cultural cultural diversity, and spread among ancient peoples. So no, I can't see any reason to think Protoceratops has anything to do with griffin lore and entirely understand the mainstream view of it as a chimeric animal cooked up by ancient cultures of the Near East. Interestingly, none of the recent papers on griffin lore and imagery I looked at in preparation for this article mention the Protoceratops griffin hypothesis, and it's surprisingly challenging to find much mention of it in any peer-reviewed literature. This is despite its 23-year vintage and wide popularity among educators, media outlets, and some paleontologists. It clearly has not been adopted as readily by archaeologists as by those of us interested in dinosaur science. End quote. I just... At this point, like, this is, like... So, what? <laughs> I think that... I think that it would be... I, th- I think they got it backwards. So, rather than saying that the the fossil was the origin of the mythology like the Uh the insert yeah it's the opposite of that so like i think that it's reasonable to think that like like scythians and like greeks and and romans whenever they're they're bopping around if they like make it out there if they see these fossil animals they would just be like it's a griffin right and already knowing about griffins they would be like that looks like it looks like a griffin took all the meat off a griffin Right. Yeah. But those are griffin bones. Cool. That's fine. This is my so what approach to things. I mean, like, okay. Like, it's this is. And also, like, yeah. And and also, there were millennia earlier, there are griffins in Susa. Like, yeah, but this guy's a paleontologist, not an archaeologist. No, the people, no, the people who wrote the hypothesis, the people who wrote the book. Yeah, those are archaeologists. Should have had, should have known, like, like, this is something where it's just like, Maybe classicists should talk to people who work in other places. Maybe they should. Um, but also sort of to um, sort of like to Witten's credit uh-huh. or sort uh-huh. of like to, to sort of lean into that idea of like people that don't know anything about the ancient world, like love this. So if you go to the American Museum of Natural History's website, I'll have a link in the yep. show notes. They've got griffin bones and it's a little you thing and sent me that so they have um <laughs> they do like comparative anatomy which is like it has four legs just like a griffin <laughs> it has a beak just like it and it's, it's but a little callback to a few episodes a few months ago um so <laughs> the protoceratops was discovered it was found poking out its little beak beaky poking out of the ground by just like my, a griffin. my my new obsession roy chapman andrews And OMFG, Anna, did you know that he's the Andrews of Andrews Arcus? I don't know what Andrews Arcus is. Do I? I don't know. Is that a thing I know? So Andrews Arcus is like a, why don't you, why don't you click on that? Look at my Andrews Arcus. 
I was obsessed with this one as a little one. And so it was it just this like mat massive jaws. And they thought maybe Ooh. it was like a massive dog, but it's sort of hippo-y. It's like a wolf Art. hippo. Whoa. But it what was named. That? So so when you discover creatures, you're not allowed to name them after yourself. So that's. No, it has to be a colleague who does it. It was somebody. Yeah, it was somebody on his team who found it. They named it after him. Wow. And I've been like obsessed with this thing since I was like seven. And like, it's, who, see, it's meant to be me and Roy Chapman Andrews. It's like all of those what is it 30 to 50 feral hogs kind of yeah. combined and formed a super hog this is this is a thing that you need I'm, well, I'm glad I know about for. this now I don't think I you know how I mean I thought I had a dinosaur phase as a kid but I don't I think I just sort of played with dinosaurs. I had a megafauna phase I didn't have a dinosaur yeah phase. I didn't no I know but I, I like all of that combined I don't think I know as much about dinosaurs and megafauna as I think I thought I did when I was a little kid okay I don't know. But this I oh. I am delighted to meet this guy. Yeah. All right. Well, turning our attention to the Caribbean, I want to take a moment to talk about jumbies. So through the twin forces of colonization and the Atlantic slave trade, Caribbean folklore is informed by indigenous, West African and South Asian traditions. The category of lurking scary monsters in Caribbean folklore is known as the Jumbies. I want to mention a couple here, courtesy of the Brown Geeks. The first one we're going to talk about is the Chorley. And the Chorley is a revenant. So a revenant mm. is something that has died and then been brought back to life to haunt the living. And uh, the Chorley originally hails from South Asia, but occupies the folklore of the Caribbean, too, and has evolved a bit. So um, and a Chorley is a spirit of a woman who died in childbirth. So some stories say that she died, but her child survived. So she's roaming the world at night, searching for her baby so that she can take it with her to the spirit realm. Others say that the child also died and then became a spirit as well. Uh, possibly with her unsure um so she has she's described as having long stringy hair covering her face um and she's either depicted carrying a crying baby in her arms or wandering alone sort of through in torment of separation so she haunts pregnant women um so she haunts pregnant people newborn babies and very young children and is said to cause miscarriages or infant mortality um and so she there if she sounds kind of like a banshee there's something else too because a chorley is known for high-pitched wailing um Mm. and and she's motivated by by grief and sort of she it's motivated by like grief and jealousy and Mm, kind of la llorona-esque as well yeah. So um, moving on from Guyana with African and indigenous roots, there's, there's the Masakuraman. So he's a large, hairy dude and he's he's real big. He's real big. He's bigger and taller than um, an average man and he's got very sharp teeth. So legend has it that he he dwell he's in the interior of Guyana, which is quite densely forested, and he lurks in the rivers waiting to attack and capsize yeah. any boat that comes by and then it'll eat you. Pretty straightforward. <laughs> uh, scary, <laughs> scary teeth will eat you. Uh, okay. There, there may be more there. there may, I'm, I'm sure, sure there is sure. more nuance to the story, but sure. as I learned from um, Miranda Debra here, the Brown Geeks, 
It's going to get you. It's not. Um, you. And then the last one that I want to talk about from, from here, and there are more in this post, and it's, it's very interesting to see the way that different culture sort of interplay and develop new things. Uh, but the third, there's uh, the Duin, the, the Duin from Trinidad. So a Duin is the spirit of a child who died before it was baptized and thus is destined to roam the earth. Um, so they are genderless, faceless creatures who wear huge uh, straw hats that look like mushrooms on their very large heads. And they have feet that are turned backwards. Uh, Duins are often seen playing in forests and they'll... they'll They'll come up to your kids and they'll be like, come play with us. Forever. Um, and so they they lure the children into the forest and then they like ghost them. And <laughs> the children are lost ghost. and abandoned forever. So yeah. don't trust strange, strange kids with backward feet and no face. Yeah. But, stranger danger. So but yeah, so pretty big bummer. Um, yeah. So there are others that are less of a bummer and more of a, well, huh. But I do recommend you check out Miranda Debra, author Miranda Debra's Roundup for more. I shall. So how do we know what all these monsters look like? I mean, in some cases you get oral histories and descriptions. And sure, you might describe a dragon, but you can't really know how someone sees a monster until they put what's in their imagination into a picture. And there are some pretty old picture books full of monsters. One such collection of these is described in a 2018 article from Smithsonian Magazine. Oh, this is just very funny. Quote, In December 1495, Rome was devastated by four days of heavy flooding. After the deluge subsided, rumors began to swirl about a terrible monster that had washed up onto the banks of the Tiber. The creature was said to be a grotesque pastiche of human and animal body parts. It had, among other peculiarities, the head of a donkey, the breasts of a woman, the bearded visage of an old man on its behind, and a tail crowned with a roaring dragon's head. This was the creature called the Papal Ass, thought to be an ominous portent of papal corruption, and something that is referenced multiple times in literature of that era, even by Martin Luther of 95 Theses fame. The Papal Ass is just one of many strange, unsettling creatures to appear in the pages of centuries-old texts now on display at the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library in Toronto. Just in time for Halloween, the library has launched De Monstris. Okay, just in time for... Halloween 2018. Maybe it's still there. An exhibition that explores the rich tradition of monstrous beings that have stoked fears and tickled imaginations throughout history. Demonstrous spans a vast period of time, linking lore from antiquity to the Middle Ages and on through the 19th century. The show features writings by the likes of Marco Polo, Sir John Mandeville, and Mary Shelley. Also on display are vivid illustrations of dragons and basilisks, unicorns and cyclopes, mermaids and manticores, and more obscure hybrid creatures. Writers felt compelled to nod to previous descriptions of monsters in part so they could flaunt their scholarly knowledge. If you're telling, for example, the history of serpents, you have to include dragons because up to that point, it was part of the tradition. (laughs) It's tradition. My father's monsters had dogs' heads and his father's and his father's. Plus... As the Smithsonian is well aware, monsters attract an audience. End quote. Let's have one more quick ad break and then we'll wrap it up. (laughs) 
This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back, and we've got one last monster from me. And this one works on multiple levels of monster. In Nazi Germany, various aspects of folklore and the occult were exploited for potential benefit to the Third Reich, but which like some of these are quite well known, known, but there's one that I didn't know about until I started pulling together sources for this episode, which was the werewolf or wie sagt man auf Deutsch? Der Werewolf. Yeah, der Werewolf. It's it's it, yeah, that's actually the dream. So historian Eric Corlander, author of Hitler's Monsters, a supernatural history of the Third Reich, says, quote, according to some 19th and 20, early 20th century German folklorists, werewolves were represented flawed but well-meaning characters who may have be bestial but are tied to the woods, the blood, the soil. They represented German strength and purity against interlopers, end quote. So. In October 1944, which if, you know, real buffs of the World War II may know is towards the end of it, um, Operation Werewolf began in which paramilitary groups would infiltrate allied camps and sabotage their supply lines. This was a this was a guerrilla action, sort of like partisan effort at this point. So it wasn't designed to win the war because they knew this that they weren't going to but it was just designed to delay the inevitable loss long enough that maybe the resolution would be a bit more favorable to germany um so operation werewolf extended into 1945 but the combination of bureaucratic static confusing where orders for guerrilla efforts were supposed to come from um combined with exhaustion of military resources this late into the war resulted in Operation Werewolf being a bust, but not before the Minister of of Propaganda, uh, Joseph Goebbels, tried to recruit new werewolves. Um, So I'm going to do a quick quote from a Smithsonian story on this topic. Uh, beginning in 19, in early, ugh, beginning early in 1945, national radio broadcasts urged German civilians to join the werewolf movement, fighting the Allies and any German collaborators who welcomed the enemy into their homes. One female broadcaster proclaimed, I am so savage, I am filled with rage. Lily the werewolf is my name. I bite, I eat, I am not tame. My werewolf teeth bite the enemy. So kind of fell off there at the end um so operation werewolf wasn't a wildly popular initiative in in germany but the semi-stochastic guerrilla attacks on allied forces had them very freaked out which was the point yeah um so it was it was um if you're not able to perform sort of the military feats of strength at least get them psyched out enough that they will sort of 
like stumble over their own feet. And so it was, um, like sounds effective. It, there were, there were sort of, uh, some reports that were like, it's like, there aren't werewolves. They're not like, it's not a thing. And then others are like, Oh no, it's real. And they became like very scared of like teens in Germany. Um, so werewolf activity continued until 1947 and it's thought that there were several thousand casualties attributed to them. But what a bewildering testament to the power of monsters that this yeah. was sort of a last ditch effort of just like, we're just going to freak gonna try out. this. Yeah, yeah it worked. Well, finally, just for fun, and because there are some really interesting history nuggets to be found, let's wrap up this week with a quick look at the actual Monster Mash, the goofy song by Bobby Boris Pickett that became a smash hit in the 60s. So a quote from TDM.co. A brilliantly campy graveyard slab of woozy surf rock, Monster Mash is the most monstrously catchy of all the Halloween anthems, which, are there other ones? Yeah. What am I, I missing? Thriller? Is that... No, I'm just out. thinking of like, I don't know, the entire um, discography of The Misfits. That's fair. Three okay. seasons of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina's soundtrack. Oh. Yeah, AFI. All right. Spooky music. Love. I love Halloween carols. Originally written by Bobby Pickett, Somerville's own, <laughs> Somerville, Massachusetts's own Bobby Pickett spent a lot of time in Somerville. Aspiring actor by day, singer in doo-wop group The Cordials by night. The 1962 novelty smash hit first came about when Pickett was performing the doo-wop tune Little Darlin' by the Diamonds and decided to pull out his impression of horror actor Boris Karloff for the spoken monologue. And Pickett recalled in a 20... 20- 2006 interview with radio broadcaster Dr. Demento, the audience cracked up. End quote. After the set... His bandmate and fellow horror film buff Lenny Capizzi suggested that Pickett's impression had the had the legs for a full-length novelty song. So the pair got together and wrote Monster Mash in around an hour using a Wallensack tape recorder. I mean, it shows. Man. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Monster Mash in an hour. They, um, I really also enjoy that on the recording, they did all kinds of great Foley work to make like lab sounds. Mm. Uh, cauldrons were created by blowing bubbles in glasses of water. And the eerie creak of a coffin lid was, in fact, scraping a rusty nail on a table. End quote. So Americans loved it. And the song was a huge hit, even spawning a whole album of spooky tunes. But the BBC thought a song about a party in a graveyard was too morbid. So the song didn't even chart there until 1972. And with that, the sun's just poking up over the horizon and any lingering trolls and boogans will be turned to stone or dispersed by its rays. So we'll leave you until next week when we'll have one more spooky episode for you. And you can find that episode and all our other episodes and everything else we do over on our website, thedirtpod.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and wherever else you like to listen. The Ether. You can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And check out our website, thedirtpod.com, for merch, the link to our Patreon, where you can support the show, resources for research with links to all the things that we use to write the shows, and more. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Bye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, 
DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.